Well, friends, I got bad news for you. That unless Jesus comes back, every one of us, one of, sooner or later, we're going to die. Death is a reality. The Bible says that we die by appointment. That you and I are going one day to die. Now, death is something that our society and day and age wants to push back, wants to hide as if it's not a reality. Death, in fact, these days can look fairly nice. You go to a funeral home, people who are dead look good. There's a professional makeup, and, and there's even a very nice way to die in style these days with a limousine. Back in the days, you had crude wooden boxes laid down on the casket and then down into the grave with ropes. No, right now, it's a fancy death without ropes, a nickel-planted machine that eases you down to put you six feet under the ground in the most comfortable way possible. But you're still dead. We're all still going to die. A fancy death does not change their reality. And what death should promote in ourselves is the idea of not wasting time while we have it on earth. That we, the older we get, there are certain things that we cannot do and we don't have time for because we realize that we are losing time every day, that we cannot waste that time. And this awareness of death is where we find ourselves in our story today. Jesus knows that his death is coming in a few days. And so he warns them that time is up, that the end is coming. That this is a turning point as we continue the Gospel of John, if you have been with us in previous weeks. Today, in fact, we conclude the first part of the Gospel of John, the miracles of Jesus, the book of signs. And next week, from chapter 13, we begin the second part of the Gospel of John, the book of glory. The moment when Jesus goes into the upper room and, and starts to have discourses with the disciples before his death. We are in the final Passover. Jesus has only one week of life left on this earth. And there's a mounting pressure that after today, Jesus will withdraw with his disciple without any more public ministry. And he gives in our text this final call to people to believe in him. It is more than, as we looked at the definition of faith throughout the Gospel of John, faith is more than this undefined experience. It means that you are, Jesus is calling you to have this a personal trust in him. And that trust is informed by the truth of his message. However, there's more than a final call to believe in Jesus. Here we have a final indictment against the prevailing rejection from the Jewish people. That Jesus now concludes his public ministry. He retires. This is the last week of his life with the disciples. He wants to prepare the, the 11 disciples for what lies ahead. And so the gospel from this point forward shifts from the revelation of Jesus to Israel to now prepare the disciples for what's ahead. Equipping the new messianic community of believers. And so we see here that the material that we will see from next week forward to the end of the gospel is for all of us as a church. 
to prepare the church, the, the last instructions of Jesus for the church before he goes back to glory. Notice this is, this is material that is not found in any other gospel. That is only found in the gospel of John. And so what do we see here as Jesus concludes his public ministry? We see here that the time has come for Jesus to die on the cross. And what that means is that he will go back to the Father. However, sadly, this also means that he, Christ leaves behind very few believers in the midst of a hardened generation. That is the indictment that we see in the words of our text. The time is up. The hour has come. And so let's look why. What is the reason that time is up? Here we have the first verse of our text, verse 23 to 30. And there the answer of Jesus is that time is up because according to the Father's plan, Jesus must now die. The time for Jesus to go to the cross has finally come. Jesus had predicted it, but now it's about to unfold. Verse 23, we left last time, if you were with us, Jesus entered Jerusalem in triumph. And he had met those Greeks, but now Jesus says, the hour has come. The hour has come. Jesus is not just giving you a comment of the time of the day, as if it's late. Although definitely Jesus is playing on this concept. We are coming now to the sunset of Jesus' ministry. That indeed after the, the death of Christ and the coming back to the Father, there will be darkness. And so this is a special time a special period of the life of jesus that half of the gospel forward will focus upon this hour the hour has come the hour of the passion week the betrayal of jesus the trial of jesus the suffering of jesus the death of jesus the resurrection of jesus the ascension of jesus that is the appointed hour and fixed time by God so that Christ will experience suffering, dying, and depart back to the Father. Those are what we saw in our Baptist catechism as we go through it every Wednesday night, the steps of the humiliation of Christ and the exaltation of Christ. And this is the definite point and the climactic occasion to the entire purpose of why Jesus came on this world. The hour has come. Uh, we know from other parts of Scripture that at the right time, Christ will die for the un ungodly. That is the, the right time right now. Remember how many times Jesus has said that throughout the Gospel of John. This is not the first time we met this. Already by John 2 verse 4, John 4, John 5, John 7, John 8, John 12 here in verse 23 and 27. But even later in John 13 and John 16, all the way to 17... The hour is mentioned. Whenever it was before a miracle or perhaps Jesus survived being killed by the crowds, the hour is mentioned. In that case, the hour had not yet come. But now in this verse, Jesus uses the same words like an alarm clock. You know, when the alarm clock goes off in the morning, you know that you have to wake up. And the disciples and everyone needs to wake up to the same reality. And Jesus said these words, our text continues, as an answer to previous week request of the Gentiles. You remember the Gentiles that come to Jesus says, we want to see Jesus to have this interview. But Jesus dismissed the whole point and says, no, now the Son of Man must be glorified. What, what does Son of Man mean? 
We already met this term. It's a messianic title, which comes from uh, Daniel's chapter 7, Psalm 80. And together with the Son of God, Son of Man, however, also denotes the fact that Jesus had a true humanity, Son of Man. He was a perfect man, a true body. And this humanity, however, now has to be sacrificed, has to die. And, however, also be glorified to receive great glory and come back in return to heaven and the glory of the Father. And verse 24 and 25 continues by pointing that this is something that needs to happen. That between heaven, between the future glory and this time on earth, there's something that needs to happen. And that something is a tragedy. It's a sad thing. It's death. But it's still needful. Our text says, unless this happened, then this cannot happen. That means that is, there is a purpose with my death. And to make this point understandable to the disciples, Jesus uses an analogy of the seed. Unless a grain of wheat falls and dies, it remains alone. Friends, just as death of a seed under the ground produces many new kernels, which lead to new life, to a new harvest, if that doesn't happen, the seed remains alone. It wouldn't be good for the seed to remain solitary. But if it dies, it produces much grain. The seed germinates and springs up in multiplied life. And it reproduces itself many times over. And the point of this is that Christ's death does indeed bring up a harvest of soul. But he must die first. It is indeed a sad and painful thing for the disciples to see their master die. But it will bring them and many others to eternal joy. It's like the labor of birth pain that are hard to go through. But once the baby comes, the mother forgets the pain of that, that the labor because of the joy of holding a child. And now the painful death of Christ is something that will bring so much sorrow to the disciples, yet it will be necessary and it will be beneficial for them. It's a warning. It is also a warning for us as followers of Jesus of the outcomes of our counting the cost. That if you seek to preserve your life, you will die. But when you embrace death, then you will live. And the disciples... All of us as believers, if we are not careful to factor this element of death and suffering, then we will make a great mistake. He who loves his life will lose it, says our text. We'll destroy it. And life here doesn't just mean your living, but the seat and the center of your inner human life. Your ego, your, your wants, your wishes that needs to die. The ones who hate or despise his life in this world shall keep it for eternal life. It's the opposite. If you let go, if you care nothing for, now this doesn't mean that now you go carelessly through life as if it doesn't matter. No, but it means to be willing to lose everything for Christ. To not be consumed by concern of this life and this self-preserving love for your life. That is a problem. That if you don't count the cost of discipleship and you, you, start, you, you seek to, to, to hold on to it, you will lose it. But if you give it up, you shall keep it. You guard it for eternal life. 
These words from Jesus shows that there is indeed a risk in faith. And I'm not talking simply uh, uh, believing in things that you cannot see. That's already a risk. But there is a willingness to die that goes in faith. That you die to your pride. You die to your own understanding. You die to your desire to remain in control of your life. And you face also, you're willing to face the hatred and the rejection of this world. However, the promise is for you eternal life. That one instant, you, you lose it all and you gain everything. And the opposite is true. That you, you seek to preserve this life that is very short, few years left, and then you have an eternal death in hell. It can never compare, no matter what. In verse 26, now Jesus gives also promises that come with this. That yes, you will face the death of yourself, but there is a promise that Christ will be near and that God will honor those who serve Christ. The trouble is we think we have time. Maybe I'll do that later. But now Jesus is saying, I'm, I'm going away. I'm going back to heaven. And he left the church to finish the job. And so we cannot live through this life carelessly. That we have a good news and we cannot keep it to ourselves. The time is running out. There's indeed a countdown before the end. Since Christ left this earth, there have been 2,000 years. In a decade or so, it will be 2,000 years since the time Jesus died on the cross. That the end of all things might be closer than we realize. That all of our lives have a time out coming, friends. And so we, we're not just called to have the right priorities, but also the right expectations. Many, many, even Christians, sadly, make their goal now to have this self-preservation. And I want to say, if that is your goal in this life, then your life is wasted. That you have your Christian beliefs, but you don't connect them to the death of Christ. And you don't connect the Christ's death to your own death. Many believers sadly don't, don't take this call to sacrifice in their marriage. When they're called to sacrifice for their spouse at work, uh, for the good of the church, the brethren, above your personal interests. And so they delay. I'll think about it later. No, Christ says the seed must die if it is to bear fruit. And it was for Christ and it is for us as true believers. Some of, some of us might not be willing to hear this truth. But for the believer, life comes through death. That we are indeed buried with him in baptism into death, says Romans 6 verse 4. And so if you want to receive life from God or be able to give life to others, you have to first die to yourself. That we must die, hate our life, take up our cross, become slaves of God. That is what the life of the Christian is. And despite all the suffering, there is extreme good. That despite the cost, despite the pain, we have the promise of an eternal life. That we join Jesus in glory. That we bear spiritual fruit even through our sorrow, even through our pain. And also that the Father will honor those who serve Him. Yes, it is hard. A hard path ahead for the disciples they don't realize, but they can count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. To the point that you look at the alternative of a life lived without Christ and it looks like rubbish. Self-love only leads to self-destruction. I think about the coming years 
as it was for the disciples, perhaps it would be for us that what if, what if God sends persecution? What if there's death and tribulation for the true follower of Christ? What are we going to do? And countless of people who go to church will be apostates. For the rest of this gospel, Jesus has to prepare the church the, to face similar troubles in this world. And the problem of the disciples is that they were sleeping, unprepared toward, toward the shifting that was about to happen. And that was a danger for them. It is a danger for us. So many can focus in this, in this life, uh, the immediate benefits of life. But Christ asks us to lose our life and to find our life in Him. Fr friends, if you place your welfare above the welfare of the kingdom of God, that is a problem. If you avoid the awkwardness of believing in Christ and unpopularly standing up for Jesus Christ, if you avoid to give it all to Jesus, then you will fail to obtain what you want. And you will lose the very life and the reputation that you were trying to save. Jesus is trying to show us the absurdity of this. That your entire life will be a waste in light of eternity. But we can also be persuaded of this positive element here. That Christ went through all these sufferings. He is not asking you to do something that he has not faced before you. That he shared with all of our frail humanity. He did this before us. And that is a, an encouragement as you go through crosses. Yes, there is a narrow way, but he went ahead. He prepared a way for us. And he prepared for us a place in heaven. Verse 27 continues the, 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 the speech of Jesus. But we can imagine here actually a long pause. And it's a, another window for us to the emotional life of Jesus. Jesus says, now my soul is troubled. We already saw that uh, at the raising of Lazarus, this word. Jesus is distressed, storm-tossed, in turmoil, and deeply. That all the humanity of Jesus is confused and unsettled because he knows what lies ahead. He knows the hour has come. His betrayal, the agony of the cross, the trial, the passion. He's counting the days now. He has less than a week of life. Can you imagine? How would you feel if you knew you were going to die in a few days? That is what's happening here. I think of those held hostage under Hamas. For some of them, it's almost better to die in one quick shot rather than go through a week of torture and rape and all sort of harm only to likewise die. Yet Jesus is, is yes, in his humanity, is, he's frightened but is not shaken in accomplishing his mission. Our text continues, says, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, for this purpose I came to this hour. He will indeed request these things in his Gethsemane experience uh, less than six days away. But then he will end up saying, not my will but thine. That for this purpose he had come on this earth. Chuck Swindoll says this, More than once Jesus deliberately addressed certain issues that quickly diminished the rumber of onlookers. It was commitment that thinned the ranks. Jesus here is not shying away. Here we have a taste of the cross, the taste of Gethsemane. Remember what we said about this word weeks ago with Lazarus? Christ is not only in turmoil at the thought of dying, turmoil over, over his own death. The turmoil here is over the one who has power over death. The, 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 the Satan and sin and, the, and death 
the sting of death. The power of evil that it will inflict upon Christ the penalty for human sin on the cross. And me and you can never imagine how it felt to be under that judgment. That was the hardest act of obedience of Christ. Yet he endured it. As an answer to a call from the Father, I have this purpose. That Christ's sacrificial death has always been and always will be the primary purpose of Jesus' mission. Our salvation was the core of the determination of Christ here. That he knew all the agony and all the shame of the cross. And worst of all, the thought of having to drink the cup of God's wrath for our sin. To be abandoned by the Father. The one who had perfect fellowship with the Father. And that cross, so it was with Christ, must remain the center of our thoughts. The center of our message. The good news of the redemption of us as sinful humanity through the life and death and resurrection of His Son, Jesus Christ. That He is both our Lord and Savior. That is indeed through the cross that a spiritual harvest from all the nations, remember last time, the Greeks, will be gathered but through the death of the King of Israel. To the entire world. That salvation comes to everyone who believes. No matter their nation. No matter their color. But it is also true that the prayer of Christ here. It's a pattern that informs our prayer. What should you say friend? Shall you pray always to be delivered from troubles? Shall you pray asking what is always good for yourself? Or what, what is better for the glory of God? Even if it entails sufferings. You have to be brought, even in prayer, to this place of even embracing the afflictions for God's purpose. I mean, how, after all, are we to be conformed to the image of Christ without learning how to die daily as His followers? As the old hymn says, The cloud you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. The second thing we see here is verse 28 to 30. It's not just that Christ has to die, but the Father will be glorified through this death. The Father's name will be glorified, says verse 28. And uh, Christ is here praying. And the line of communication between the Father and the Son is so direct that just like at Jesus' baptism, the Father answers. At the end of the public ministry of Jesus, the Father comes and with His voice from heaven says, I have glorified and will glorify my name again. This is the witness of the Father once again. But it is for the bystanders, for the people who watched, who by now are saying, oh, this might be a thunder. Some other people said, oh, it's an angel. No, this was the, fa the Father. And surely it was encouraging for the Son to... Uh, who is in a troubled soul right now in all humanity to hear the commendation of the Father, but it's also a testimony for all of us, evangelistic testimony, to see how the Father is glorified through the death of His Son, just as He has been glorified by the perfect life of the Son. That in the cross, friends, you see the character of God as Savior, that he needs to be honored and glorified by everyone. That we too must give glory to the Father because He sent the Son to die for us out of His infinite love. That is ultimately the reason. Let's look at why, however, the fact that time has come matters for us. And that is verse 
35 to 43. The reason that the, the hour has come is because once Jesus is gone, the majority of people will be left to the hardness of their hearts. And a few disciples will have to ponder the sufferings that are ahead. Verse 35 to 36, Jesus responds to the puzzled Jews and he warns them that he will leave and that will be almost like darkness. Light is about to switch off. And when light leaves, darkness arises and it will overtake people, leaving them blind, without direction, without the gospel, without the light of Jesus. This is the last call to believe in Jesus, to become sons of light before it's too late. As our text says, Jesus now leaves the crowd. He comes out of the stage. He retires from public ministry now. And from this point forward, Jesus, our text says, remains hidden from them. That is an interesting word. Hidden, not just physically, but hidden spiritually. That from this point forward, there will be no more ministry, no more miracles, no more preaching. Good luck from now on for the crowd trying to find direction through their dead religion without Christ. The Christ who had done so many things in front of them. But as John Newton once said, zeal without knowledge, which is the problem of the crowd, is like expedition to a man in the dark. That when, what people don't realize is that there's only a, a little time left to repent and believe in Jesus for their salvation. People say, ah, oh, keep repenting later. Which, by the way, reminds me of the scene of a movie, God's Not Dead. Here you have a rich son talking to his mother, which by this time has Alzheimer. And he, he says this to her, you believed in God all your life. Explain that to me. You're the nicest person I know. I am the meanest you got the mention, my life is perfect. Explain that to me. And in one miraculous moment of sanity, the mother comes out of their Alzheimer and she answers this. Sometimes the devil allows people to live a life free from troubles because he doesn't want them to turn back to God. Sin feels to them like a nice and comfy jail. The door is wide open. But one day, time runs out. The cell slams shut and suddenly it's too late. We have only a limited and finite time to respond to the light, after which times run out. The blackout came. After that, for the crowd, it was over. It was too late. Think about the Jews. For the past 2,000 years, the gospel went all over the world and God has removed the light of the gospel from the Jewish people. And God may indeed remove the light of the gospel even from entire nations because of unbelieving, indivi unbelieving individuals who are exposed to the light of the gospel over and over again without believing. And this is a negative impact upon even the believers, not just the unbelievers, who are unprepared. The disciples are unprepared. The sleeping church, we could say today, that we wander in the darkness and fall. That God's patient, friends, has an end. There is an expiration date for all of us. And your negative response to Christ now determines your eternal judgment later. And your lack of use of the light now determines also your lack of maturity and your fall. Like the 11 disciples were not ready for what was coming. But mostly the Jewish people. The people will be left in their unbelief when Jesus goes away. To understand why this is the end of Jesus' public ministry, verse 37 to 43 tells us of the departure of Jesus. 
by fulfilling Old Testament prophecies. Now, it's never the norm in this world to see a public person deciding to depart from public ministry all of a sudden, as we see here in Jesus. And I'm sure everyone was wondering why. But you see, Jesus did not come to deliver a show, to gather up crowds, but to deliver the message. And if they don't believe, then the time comes for too late. And this is uh, the prophecy that is given it's from Isaiah 53 which is a famous prophecies of the Old Testament, the most Christ-centered prophecy of the Old Testament about the suffering servant. Why? Jesus has done so many signs. As I said, we're concluding the book of signs, the first part of the Gospel of John. They still did not believe in Jesus. The, the prophet Isaiah says, Who has believed our report? No one. Or very few, we could say. But there is a deeper reason that that the gospel here says, according to Isaiah 6, verse 10, they could not believe, actually, that God himself, he is the subject, is the one who blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. Elsewhere in the gospels, these verses are quoted referring to the parable, the way that Jesus used parables to actually confound those who do not believe. So it's not just the crowds it's not just their free will. It's not just John who said, oh, if only we could have convinced them more. No, that's not what's going on here, friends. God's will is that they remain blind and hardened at heart. God doesn't want them to see. Unless, lest, says our, our text. God wants to prevent and prohibit something from happening. God doesn't want them to understand and be saved because of what they have witnessed. Their unbelief is, has gone too far, we could say. Interestingly, John comments also in verse 41, they saw his glory. You know the passage Isaiah 6, which refers to the cherubims and the throne of God. But here in John, who is the his glory? Who is the him? It's Jesus. And that, I want to say, is one, another evidence is that John... Again, as no trouble applying Old Testament reference to Yahweh to Jesus. They saw the glory of Jesus. Then verse 42 and 43 continues. That despite the predominant unbelief, there's still a call to believe. Among the religious leaders, our text says, many believed in Jesus. You think it's encouraging, but then you read the, the next line and it says, they did not confess Christ. Because they feared the Pharisees, they feared excommunication. The root problem that we already saw in chapter 6 of John is that they love the praise of man more than the praise of God. The self-vain glory as opposed to God's glory. To their shame, by the way. In uh, John 6, we saw this in verse 44. The relation between self-glory and unbelief. I venture to say they're, they're lost on the basis of Jesus' words in Luke 9, verse 26, Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory. In his glory. Notice again the relation between the glory of God and unbelief. Yes, many believed, our text says, but their unwillingness to profess their faith openly, hanging on to their own glory, made their faith un unauthentic. Matthew Henry has something interesting to say about this. The more Christians are taking up with the glory Christ has given, the less desirous they will be of vain glory. 
and consequently, the less disposed to quarrel. We talked in past evening services about Saul in the Old Testament and the danger of the fear of men. And here we see now that the fear of men can hinder true conversion, can hinder even the Christian witness that a believer gives to the world. It is possible for fear of repercussion, if not for fear of persecution, to act like Nicodemus. You approach Jesus with interest, but you fail to profess openly faith in Christ. Because maybe the social risk to become a public follower of Jesus becomes too high. Perhaps you fear those in authority. Perhaps you want to please your spouse. Perhaps you have right ideas about God, but the application of these ideas to your life is what becomes controversial. And that's why I want to say, let me make a comment here about membership. Church membership is so important in our church. We believe that when you come to Christ, you are commanded by God to make th th that profession of faith public. You do that through baptism and through membership in a local church. And the case of Nicodemus is, is kind of a faith that is still inadequate because it's a prisoner of people's opinion. That's why, again, serious commitment to Christ comes with a serious commitment to a local church as an imperative to actually obey the commandment of the Lord. You commit to Christ, you commit to the church, and that is, if you're a true believer, you want to do that. That the moment you choose Christ, you choose to be part of His bride. And His bride is the church in a specific local body. And people that, like the Pharisees, are on edge. Some of them want to believe, but they're still afraid. Their profession of faith came into question here. Something is incredibly wrong in that picture. But let's lo now look uh, at our third point. What should we do about the fact like that the hour has come? And those are the remaining verses in our text. That if we want to avoid sharing the coming judgment with the devil, Jesus calls us to believe and to submit to the Son lifted up on the cross. That is the mission of Christ. Come to the cross to avert judgment. Jesus says, judgment is, of this world is now, verse 31. That refers to the sentence of judgment and the crisis of that the evil will come into because of what Jesus is about to do. The ruler of this world will be cast out, overthrown. This is, the cross will be the defeat of Satan. He will be expelled from his illegitimate seat and he loses the absorbed authority he has over this world. Jesus many times uh, had cast out demons, by the way, before this point. Now, John doesn't tell us more, more in the other gospel, but the point is, the demons knew that the kingdom was coming, so they sought to bring distraction through demon possessions. And when it comes to the cross, the resurrection, that is what sends the death blow to the enemies of our souls, Satan. So let's, let's pause here, and what is this Satan being overthrown? Now, obviously, it's not re referring neither to the original moment when Satan was cast out of heaven, that happened somewhere in Genesis before the fall. It is not even referring to the binding of Satan that we find in the book of Revelation, chapter 20. And why I say this? Because if you go to the same author, John, 1 John 5, 19, it says that the world still lies in the power of the evil one. So that has to refer to something else. What, what here, this overthrown, is that it refers to the fact that the cross defeated Satan. 
But this defeat has not yet worked itself out in human history. That in principle, Satan is cast out. But this is not an immediate fact. If you don't believe it, you look at our world. How Satan is, you know, think about uh, Ukraine or Hamas or China. Who knows, World War III may come upon us again. We take this binding of Satan to be a future thing, Revelation 20. But the casting out here in John refers to the eruption of the kingdom of God in this world through what? Through the cross, through redemption. It's almost as Jesus steals souls away from the dominion of the current prince of this world, Satan. Who through the first Adam, remember what happened at the fall. It caused all humanity, all his descendants to be under the devil's dominion. The snake had done that. Yes, he might be the prince of this world, but his kingdom is about to come tumbling down. So we don't believe either also that the cross is another error in church history was that somehow Jesus paid a ransom to Satan. That is not what's going on. But our text tells us the cross doesn't just grant us forgiveness. It is the, the defeat of Satan, absolutely. And so we should be encouraged, friends, when we are under pressure from this world, when there's something that the devil will never be able to take away from you. That through the blood of Christ, you are protected forever. If you are his child, Satan will rage. His battle will come, but he has already lost the war. That Christ has disarmed evil angelic rulers and authorities by triumphing over them at the cross. That Satan's head has been crushed. Verse 32 and 33 of our text speaks of this being lifted up. The way that Jesus will die is not by stoning, not by being thrown off the cliff like they wanted to do in Nazareth, but by being exalted. And that is the glory of the cross. We saw that already in chapter 3, verse 14. The serpent that Moses lifted up in the wilderness. But now it says, drawing all people to himself. Like a magnet, the cross is a force. And yes, we think it's a disgraceful death in the cross, but it's not so for Christ. All the people, we saw the Gentiles coming to Jesus last time. And John knows the ending and says, this is what kind of death Jesus will die. And another show of unbelief, the crowds wander in the dark. Obviously, they don't get what the Son of Man, they don't get what this lifted up means. Because again, they're wandering in the dark. They have not investigated the Old Testament well. But you see how the symbol of defeat becomes the symbol of victory. The cross was indeed an excruciatingly painful death. Public humiliation in the most degrading way possible. It makes us wonder why. Yet imagine for a moment John who wrote this gospel. Uh, in, in one week from now he will be one of, the only of the 12 apostles who will actually witness this scene face to face. The, the, the Son of Man will be lifted up on the cross. They will take that, that cross and it will be lifted up. He saw at that moment these words come true. That his master needed to be lifted up on that cross. He remembered these words. He remembered that now is the time, now is the hour that this spiritual attraction of the cross cannot be resisted by any of his true children. That is why he came to die for me, John says, as he looked at that scene. This is why he came. He was pierced for me. He realized that the instrument to gather and to recover the lost sinners 
lying under the power of the evil one is not through an earthly kingdom, but through the cross. And as dark as it might have appeared, the cross was the first step of a glorious resurrection and triumphal ascension into heaven. This is something that affects everyone, friends. Not in the absolute sense, but all without distinction. From all the nations, from every background, and therefore it's for us an universal call to go to the cross, no matter where we are found. That is how our text ends, our last verses from verse 44 to 50. That you believe in Jesus to avert the judgment. Jesus gives this final shout. He cries out, believes in me. And if you believe in me, believe that the Father sent me. Because you, if you see me, you see the Father. This analogy again of the serpent lifted up. That we must look and not just see at that cross. That is how we are saved. Seeing Jesus and beholding him in all of his beauty. Seeing the light. Finally understanding what the cross stands for. Later in chapter 14 verse 9. Almost as a rebuke, Jesus says to Thomas, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And, and that is the final warning also, however, to unbelievers at the end of our text. That believers will be saved by looking to Jesus lifted up, but unbelievers will be judged on the last day by the word of God that was preached to them. You can be assured that you will face greater judgment than the one who has never heard the word of God. And here's the last words of Jesus' public ministry. And again, he confirms his authority, his fact that he's sent from the Father and that he grants eternal life. Time is given us, as Ari Aronsat says, time is given us to use in view of eternity. Friends, we live in a generation where people are more and more hardened, apathetic, refusing the things of God, just like the prophecy of Isaiah. At the last meeting of the Maury County Southern Baptist Association, I went there a few weeks ago, and it was made this point very clear, okay? Churches are getting older in age. Ministries are shrinking. An entire generation has never gone to church. It was unthinkable here in the Bible Belt. And, and, the, and the refrain was, so much has changed in few decades. That is the issue here. All this can become discouraging. You want to see fruits. You want to see conversions. You want to see revivals. And, and what you see is the opposite. Who has believed our report? Asked the prophet. And Christ asked the same question about his own ministry. He's the ultimate prophet. Why? Why did Israel reject? Is it because the church is not culturally relevant that all this is happening? No. Our text gives us a hint of the possible reason. Judgment is at work. It's not that God, don't get me wrong, forces people to unbelief, okay? That's not what's happening. It's that God leaves people to themselves. That people refuse to believe over and over again, delighting in wickedness, suppressing the truth, scoffing at Jesus Christ. So now God is justified in sending judgment by blinding them, hardening them even more. So judgment, friends, it doesn't necessarily come through disasters or tragedies. But our text, judgment comes subtly through people living self-sufficient, comfortable lives where they don't need God. And I want to venture to say that is a worse judgment than when God actually sends chastisement to call you back to himself. No, 
he leaves you to yourself. And you're not even chastised. And God himself is behind this. That is the indictment to Israel. The time is out. I even ran out of time here. It's time for me to end this sermon. I don't want to spoil our fellowship meal this morning. But how shall we end this? I want to end this, friends, by warning you. That indeed, just as it was back then, Jesus is in, in his trouble sore. He's warning everyone of the death, the departure back to the Father. We can say it's the same thing right now. The time has come to believe for eternal life. To see Jesus lifted up on the cross for your sin as the most glorious and, and universal gift to fallen mankind. Christ is drawing you to himself this morning. Either Jesus died for you or you will die in your sins. Friends, there's no third option here. My encouragement to you is, if you don't know Jesus, stop trying to hang on on a world that is about to collapse. Unless you want to collapse with that world and being judged with the devil and his angels for the same unbelief. Time is up, friends. Fewer and fewer are the years and months and weeks that, that, that unbelievers will have the opportunity to hear this gospel call. Fewer and fewer will be the churches that preach this gospel before the light switch off and darkness take over. How does it take over? Through apathy, through indifference. That God blinds everyone with stupor, hardening their hearts, following by an eternal judgment in hell. However, despite this predominant unbelief, Jesus sends his invitation still out. And this is like the case of Jesus here might be the last chance, friend. We don't know if we have tomorrow. This is your ultimate decision with eternal consequences. But I want to also want to warn believers. Less and less will be the seasons that God gives us when we can live in freedom and profess our faith without facing consequences for our beliefs. Friends, when the hour comes, we'll, we'll see who is really ready to die for the faith. And in our case, this becomes all the more crucial, I want to say. We, we're facing the, the last hour. And that is more, even, even more crucial to, to realize that our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. It is time for the church, friends, to wake up. Because as Ecclesiastes says, there is a time for living, a time for dying. And when the day is over... What our text shows us is that few find eternal life. That is the sad truth. Most remain dead. And so my call to you is to come and find life in Jesus Christ. Let us pray.